2 Timothy, and we're going to read chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 4. Paul, the apostle, writes to Timothy, the next generation, Timothy, the leader of the church in Ephesus. But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not go very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And let me give you a different translation for that last verse that is better, I think. But you, keep your head 
in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Well, let's pray. Lord, we confess our own weakness and inadequacy in light of your word and its standards. And we pray, Lord, that we will deal well with this letter this morning. And we pray in particular, Lord, for Andy and for Kyrene as they listen to the apostles' instructions, to ministers of Jesus' church. Help us all, Lord, to embrace what is said on this unusual commissioning Sunday that we might pray these things for them and for all ministers of the gospel and for all the future ministers of the gospel that we are privileged to train in this church. For Alistair, for Cheeks, for Davy, for the many others that have been trained over the years, and for the many who will be trained, God willing, in years to come. And for their generation, and for the youngsters, the teenagers in our country who will be in time future church leaders in what is not an easy time. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us, edify us, and that we would concentrate. And we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I first met Andy seven years ago at a UCCF staff conference I was speaking at. The conference was for UCCF really workers and people identified in Christian unions who had a gift to teach. And Andy stood out. I wondered if I could persuade him to come to Chalmers to train. So I did something unusual. I wrote him a handwritten letter, which is always a winner these days. I met him in Dundee and did manage to persuade him. It was in some ways a strange decision for him. He was and is and will be a free church boy. That is his background and his heritage. Back then, seven years ago, I asked him, I think in the City Arts Centre in Dundee, what kind of ministry or church would you like to lead in the future? He said to me then, seven years ago, I want to plant a church in Charleston. A different world in many ways from the Grange in Edinburgh or from Morningside Road. But he came and he stayed for six years. He has learned some stuff, we trust, but he hasn't really changed. And that's a good thing. Gifts for ministry are God-given and are to be nurtured and allowed to flourish. Andy's commitment to plant a church in Charleston has never gone. And so here we are today. It is about to become a reality. Over Andy's time, these six years in Chalmers, many things have changed. Just small things like the whole spiritual landscape of Scotland. 
changed irrevocably over these six years. Not through his or anyone else's intention, but by God's providence, he and a number of others training have enabled, and they have more to do with this than they think, have enabled strong links to be forged between the independent churches and the Free Church of Scotland for the future. The Free Church of Scotland will be one of the key contexts for ministry training and planting in Scotland. Chalmers will remain an independent church, but will train people for independent church ministry and will continue to train people for Free Church of Scotland ministry. Charleston will train people for Free Church of Scotland ministry and independent church ministry. And that broad vision and that true gospel partnership will be critical over the next 20, 30, or 50 years. Andy, you have a key role to play in that. You will need all the convictions that God has given you. You will need political acumen, wisdom, relational gifts, and endless patience to break down the walls and the barriers that are tribal in this country. And any fumbling attempts in my generation to put the scaffolding in place for the future and all that we can do, those of us in the 40-plus generations, will be able to do with the mess and the havoc and the desolation in the church is put the scaffolding in place. What you must do, Andy, with many like you, is build on all that is good, dismantle all that is wrong, multiply gospel vision, and God willing, through your lifetime of ministry, 30, 40, or 50 years hence, we will, we may do, we may not see better days for God, for the Lord Jesus, for the gospel in Scotland. Now, Andy, you came here off the back of a letter. I want to send you away off the back of a very different kind of letter, not this time the faltering wisdom of man, but the inspired revelation of God. Paul's personal letter to Timothy. Paul, the apostle's letter to Timothy, to the minister of the church in Ephesus. These are the last words of the apostle to the first generation of church leaders in the church. It is a letter written from one generation to the other at a critical point in the history of the church. It is a tough letter, full of urgency that Timothy will rise to the challenge. It is an urgent letter that has all through it a quiet note of uncertainty. Will Timothy rise to the challenge? It may be a tough letter that says tough things, yet at the same time, it is as gentle and as affectionate as the apostle ever is as he nears the end of his life and entrusts the gospel to Timothy, his dear son, his child in the faith. Now, I would just love to be able to take the whole day and read through the whole letter. Your minister's about to go to Ireland, and I get five hours on the book of Ruth, one hour each day. That's paradise for a minister. I'm not going to go, well, I am going to go through the whole letter 
quickly, slowly. I want us to get the heart of this letter. You know, if I wrote you a letter or you wrote me a letter, you wouldn't read it over five weeks. We kind of carve up the Bible into little chunks. Let's try to get the feel and the heart out of this letter in uh, 30 minutes or uh, 22 minutes from now. Those of you who are worried about uh, my timing, Andy, incidentally, has the best batting average in Chalmers. He scores usually on a Sunday in the early 30s. I'm a little higher, but I've got a stopwatch running. Now, Paul begins the letter. Have it open in front of you or on your phone. It will make a big difference as we look at it. Paul begins the letter by talking about Timothy's start in life. Maybe this will rhyme with some of you here. It does with me. I thank God, 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to famine to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy had a good start in life. He had the privilege of a godly upbringing, a godly mother, a godly grandmother, who set him an example and taught him the Scriptures. Now, equally, Andy, you have the privilege of a godly upbringing, Godly parents, both of you do. Godly grandparents who set you an example and taught you the Scriptures. You are not obligated by what you have received, but you are blessed by having received it. A godly upbringing and a gift from God. I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. A training program, as I said, can nurture a gift, but cannot ever give it. There are lovely things about Andy that have never changed. He still can't pronounce his T's. He hasn't changed his dress. He hasn't really got much better as a preacher. He's got better at preaching regularly, better at dividing Bible books, but the gift that he has has really always been there. When Davy and Cheeks preached their first sermon, a couple of months ago, I was just thinking, listening, they have a gift. All we can do is mess it up. Gifts are to be nurtured. And he hasn't changed the way he dresses. And that's a powerful thing because it speaks of the real things underneath that matter that are gifts from God, not his dress sense. What is the most important gift? And where does this whole letter head? The most important gift that makes someone fit to be a church leader is the gift to teach the Bible. And the reason for that is not just what we say in churches like this. The reason that the most important gift is to teach the Bible, that the church of Christ is led by Christ through His Word. And so leadership in the church is always through the teaching of God's Word. Every single passage in the New Testament on the qualifications for eldership references the ability to teach 
or preach. Now, Andy, God has given you a great gift to teach. But the gift to teach is compromised or frustrated in a church leader without the necessary character for Christian leadership. For God gave us, you, a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He is, or He requires of you, toughness, clarity, unshakable convictions, loving kindness, gentleness, self-discipline. That is the mixture, the amalgam that makes the character for Christian leadership. What does it feel like? More often than not in the Christian leader, and your minister, me, and Andy is no exception to this, nor Sam, nor Cheeks, nor Davy, nor Ali Sewell who'll be here tonight, or anyone else you can think of, what it feels like is usually a profound sense of weakness, an acute sense of failure, just like it did for the Apostle Paul. If you read his second letter to the Corinthians, where the Apostle describes his profound sense of weakness. Now, poor old Timothy often gets caricatured in the Bible commentaries as timid Timothy. Timid Timothy with his tummy troubles. That's why Paul recommends that he has a little wine to settle his tummy, only though for external application. Well, it was timid Timothy that Paul sent as his chief envoy to the Corinthian church, and what a hotbed of a mess that was. He's hardly a weakling as Timothy, is he? He's just normal. He is normal as a minister because God's strength is manifested through weakness. You never see weakness, I guess, up front. Many of you will say to me, I'm so strong and determined. And Andy is so strong and determined on his feet. And so he is and so he needs to be. But underneath is weakness that manifests itself in strength and conviction and steadfastness. And ultimately, of course, thoroughgoing dependence on God. There is, I think, some suggestion in what Paul says that Timothy will not rise to the challenge and that his sense of weakness might get the better of him, and instead of his gifts being fanned into flame, they will flicker and go out. And Andy, you need to remember, as all ministers do, that God is in you by His Spirit, and He has given you a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Now, chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. How are we doing? 19 minutes, 43 seconds, and point seven. You see the rhythm of the letter. You see, now, normally we'd have taken two Sundays to get to here, and only 20% of you would have heard them both, and none of you would have listened online, and who knows what Timothy's about. But today is different. Chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. He just says this. He says, look, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Isn't that a powerful thing? How often in your life as a Christian have you hung your head in conversations about Jesus? So important that a Christian leader is not ashamed of Jesus or his testimony or his gospel. 
Don't be ashamed and guard the gospel. Let me just read the bookends of chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. This is the section on not being ashamed and guarding the gospel. Verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to our holy calling. And the other bookend, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. Every generation has a responsibility to guard the gospel, to protect it. My generation has made a pretty bad job of that in this country. You generation, Andy and others, must guard the gospel. The future is in your hands. That's how it is. That's the deal that you have been given. You must guard the gospel and it will not be easy. Your job may be for 50 years in your generation simply to guard the treasure of the gospel. That's maybe all it'll be. Guarding means protecting from those who want to capture it, and few will guard it. It is worth remembering that by the end of his ministry, this is the great apostle Paul, Saint Paul, that we all love and that the church lords, and we build statues of him, and we call churches Saint Paul's Cathedral, He says to Timothy, everyone, Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, in Asia. Now, Asia isn't Morningside. Asia's not Dundee even. Asia's bigger than Australia. Everyone in Asia has deserted the great apostle. Think of the church in Britain. The most marvelous building in London is St. Paul's Cathedral, but there is no way on earth if St. Paul pitched up at that door, he would be allowed to preach a sermon in his own cathedral. Not many will guard the gospel. Two things encourage me. One, your generation, Andy, is clearer than mine. Here's a myth that I'm going to expose. The myth is that the older you get, the clearer you are in the gospel. That's not true. The truth is that the younger you get now in our country, the clearer you are in the gospel. Some of the clearest, strongest, most vibrant Christians are Christians whose faith is fashioned in the school playground. And that is hugely encouraging for the future. And the second thing that encourages me is this. You do not guard the gospel, Andy, with human means, with flesh and blood tactics, with committees, councils, meetings, or even gospel vision. It is music, Andy, I know to your ears that you do not guard the gospel with committees, councils, meetings. <laughs> you guard it with the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You guard it with supernatural power at your disposal. It is the Holy Spirit within you that sanctifies your conscience, that puts zeal in your hearts, that will make you get up every morning and go on battling in ministry, and that you will be not be moved. The only sword you need is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, the whole of chapter 2 is a picture of the Christian minister. And we are going to sail or fly across chapter 2 at 35,000 feet. There are lots of brush strokes on the canvas. It's as if Paul has a big canvas and he goes, here's Mark 1, here's Mark 2, and I'm going to paint for you a picture of a Christian minister. 
But first he says this. Notice chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I'm about to tell you what you should be like as a minister. Before I do that, though, I want you to remember this. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust two faithful men who will be able to teach others. Paul is about to describe the Christian minister. Before he does that, he says, I want you to train others to do this job. One of the best things you did as a church, Chalmers or St. Catherine's as it was eight years ago, was to set up the Bona Trust with a vision to invest and train the next generation of church leaders from Scotland. It is one tiny drop in the ocean. All sorts of things, though, are now falling into place. Things that God has done, circumstances that God has created at a time that we could not have anticipated. And I hope and pray that God is behind it, not us. I hope and pray that we will not mess it up. But the people who have been trained and are coming through now into church leadership, people like Andy, Graham Shanks in Brunsfield, Martin Smith going to the borders, Ali Sewell, who'll be here tonight, going to Haddington. Just names to many of you, but gifted leaders, every single one of whom will begin their ministry, as Andy will in Charleston, with people under them training for ministry. And that is how church planting and training will be replicated under God over the next generation. unless we mess it all up. And the risk is very real. Now, Paul's picture of the Christian worker. Here we are at 30,000 feet above the trees. Verses 3 and 4. Andy, you are to be a soldier engaged in the battle to guard the gospel, to fight against the devil in spiritual warfare. We're blessed to have a soldier in church. He's called Army Dan. You meet him. He looks like a soldier. And to be a Christian leader in the church in the Western world today, you need to be a soldier, a fighter, a general, a captain. Verse 5, Andy, you need to be an athlete. Why did you all laugh? (laughs) You need to be an athlete who runs the race with perseverance, without cutting corners, without breaking the rules. Verse 6, you need to be a hardworking farmer like your granddad working hard to bring in the harvest, cultivating holiness in your life. Verses 14 to 19 of chapter 2, you need to be a workman with the Word of God. Verses 20 to 21, you need to be a pure vessel, holy and useful to God, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a worker, godly. And what is the line that runs through all of that? And what is the dominant color on the big portrait? Think of the portrait on the screen of the Christian minister. Just picture it in your mind on that screen. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a worker with a word, a godly, humble man. What is the dominant color on that portrait? It is enduring hardship for the work of the gospel. That is how the description starts. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That is true of every Christian minister. And Paul, well aware of that, tucks in that little section in chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. As you look at that picture, yeah, picture Andy up there. He's a soldier. You would pray that he'll have the strength 
of an army general, an athlete, the dedicated athlete, the hardworking farmer, the godly, godly man, enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel, verse 8, Andy, remember Jesus. Remember his example. And remember that there would be no gospel to proclaim had his death not given way to life. Remember there would be no church if the apostles had not died to self and physically died. Remember there would be no Chalmers church if men like Thomas Chalmers hadn't, what did he do? Suffered for the sake of the gospel in this nation. This generation of Christian leaders that we are privileged to change will be the first generation of Christian leaders in Scotland, in the Western world, for hundreds of years who will be the generation who suffer most for the sake of the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, if the gospel is going to turn, if the country is going to turn, they will suffer for its sake. It has always been thus. And in these times, all we can do is remember Jesus. Now, we're nearly there. Chapter 3 through to chapter 4, verse 5 is the next section. And then we land the plane. Remember, though, it is all one letter that flows seamlessly. At this point in the letter, you pause and you go and put the kettle on and you think, oh, meditate on what Paul has been saying, that great start in life. And you think, well, yeah, I did have a great start in life. I had my mother and my grandmother. And, you know, Andy, you're going to think about that, your parents and your grandparents. And this issue of then, don't be ashamed. And Timothy will say, look, sometimes I am ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Now, just picture Jesus on that screen in your minds. Don't be ashamed of him. How would we be? Guard the gospel with the sword of the Spirit. And then that canvas of the Christian minister, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, the worker, the godly man, with that dark gray streak running through the picture of enduring hardship. Those of you who are Australian need to understand something about the Scots. We like to lose well, which is better than winning. So a narrow defeat to Australia in the Rugby World Cup semi-final is better than a win. It's better to lose well. And so Scots, God willing, are good at suffering for the sake of the gospel. But you're going to have to do that as a generation. And then Paul's logic in chapter 3, 1 to 4, 5 builds to the most important point he wants to make to Timothy. After he comes back from putting the kettle on with his cup of tea, he sits down and he reads the real deal at the end of the letter. You know, you always put the best bits at the end. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, have no illusions about the world and the worldly church. Have no illusions about the world and the worldly church. Open your eyes. Don't call sin 
grace. Don't call bad good. Much of the church has the appearance of godliness but denies its power. There is no power, no authority. There might be human power and human authority. There might be religious power and religious authority. There might be magnificent buildings, cathedrals built to the glory of God, but they might be dead because the Holy Spirit is not there. No power, no power to fan into flame supernatural gifts from God, no indwelling spirit, have no illusions about the world and the worldly church. Verses 10 to 13, hold the right mentors in high regard. You, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, so on and so forth. Be like me. Hold the right mentors in high regard. Teach like Paul and live like Paul. Now, Andy, I would love to claim I am your mentor, and you should look to me. But that is not right for two reasons. One, because very often I look to you as my mentor, and I do. But shouldn't iron sharpen iron? Yes, but it's way more important, way more trustworthy, way more demanding that if you look not to me or to anyone else as your mentor, but to the Apostle Paul and behind him to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is before Jesus, Andy, that you will stand on Judgment Day and give an account of every day of your ministry. It is before him. That's scary. But here's the wonderful bit, that he lives in you by his Spirit. So if you yield to him, you cannot but be like, not even a minister of Christ, but a minister like Christ. For Christ is in and through every true Christian minister. Hold the right mentors in high regard. Hold on to the Word. But as for you, 14 of chapter 3, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Remember your granny again. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Hold on to the Word, Andy, even if all around you people are letting go of it, or not letting go of it, but just loosening their grip on it. That's more dangerous. Hold on to the Word. Hold on to the heritage of the Word in this nation. But allow yourself only one hour a week of nostalgic reflection. Hold on to the Word. And then more importantly, and here is the zenith, the pinnacle, the peak of his letter, hold out the Word. And so, verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearance in his kingdom. Now, is the most important thing in the church the preaching of God's word? That's just what churches like Chalmers do. These Bible nutty churches. Where else in this letter or where else in the New Testament does the apostle say, I charge you before God and before Jesus Christ whom you will stand face to face with and give an account of your ministry, who will judge all that is living and all that is dead, I charge you. He never says it anywhere else. I charge you to preach the word in season and out of season. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, 
they will accumulate for themselves. What a powerful translation that is. They will accumulate for themselves people who will say what they want them to say and tickle their little ears. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, Andy, have no illusions about the world and the worldly church. Hold the right mentors in high regard. Not me, not the apostle, but Jesus. Hold on to the Word and hold out the Word that you hold on to. And as we land the plane, Paul began the letter by reminding Timothy of his good start in life. As he comes to the end of the letter, he directs Timothy's attention not to the start, but to the end of the race. For Paul, it was months away. For Timothy, it was maybe 30 years away. You know, when I was, when was I in the church last Monday, I was walking up the steps, and in the church meeting, Alan was talking about the rules for calling a new minister. It's a little scary if you're the present minister. But I walked up the steps, and I thought, I'm only going to be here for, if I stay till I'm 65, you know, how many years? 17, 18 years? And I'm going to be gone. And what, what will I have done? And it's good, I think, to look at the finish line. And Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And when you've been in ministry through Scotland's turbulent world for 10 years, you begin to feel these words as true. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. And I think that this generation of ministers now in Scotland will die young. I think I'll die young because I'll be knackered. Well, I think, I think it's true. Not because we overwork, but because the impact of all that has happened is real. That's why ministry in Scotland at the moment is littered with casualties of war. It is. But that's when the gospel is fanned into flame in a nation. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A good start but perseverance to the end, and then the crown of righteousness. Now, Andy, here's a warning shot across your bows. You are a very gifted young man. People might want to put lots of crowns on your head. I pray and hope that people will invite you to speak at lots of big fancy conferences because you're gifted as a preacher and you will edify many people. But the only crown you want the only accolade you must seek is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to you on that day. For God gave us, you, a spirit, not of fear, but of power. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Guard it with your life and with the sword of the Spirit. Endure hardship hardship for the sake of that gospel. Have no illusions. Hold the right mentors in high regard. Hold on to the Word of God. 
hold out the Word of God, and run the race till the end. And may God's grace indwelling you through His Spirit put strength in your stride every day of your life, which is every day of your life in ministry. And may God bless you, and may God bless all ministers of the gospel in this nation who seek to do such. Let's pray. Father, these are big challenges, and they come with a ring and a veracity and a power in our day and generation more than they have done over the centuries. And we pray, Lord, whether we are 15 here or 19 or 25 or 35 or 45 or 85, that whatever time we have left on this earth, that we would make it count for the sake of the everlasting kingdom of God. And thank you, Lord, that when all is said and done, the apostle peppers his writing with a reminder that it is only by grace, it is only because God lives in us by his Spirit, and these wonderful words in the middle of that portrait of the Christian minister, remember Jesus. Remember Him. Remember Him. Remember Him. And we pray all these things in His sweet and precious and worthy name and for His sake. Amen.